Hi, I'm Jez Rolfe. And I'm Kath Giles. Welcome to the Tree Radicals podcast, an inquiry into the future for trees, forests and humans. Join us along with experts, innovators and thinkers as we consider what positive action for these life-giving systems might look like. The Tree Radicals podcast is brought to you by Woodland Presents with Timber Strategies. Which is one strand of the Tree Radicals inquiry. Stay tuned for new Radical online and in-person content and courses starting soon. It is a stunning September day in the heart of South Devon and it is my absolute pleasure to be here today with Guy Singh Watson who is I think an inspiration to a huge amount of people locally, nationally, uh, in the food sector and what you've done, your outspokenness and we're standing at the top of this field with newly planted walnut and hazel which we'll come on to but Guy perhaps Give us an introduction to where you've come from, what you do. Okay, I'm a, I'm a farmer's son, and uh, my dad's been farming just a mile that way uh, since uh, 1951. And, uh, and I came back to the farm in uh, 1986 and started growing uh, vegetables organically. And uh, I like to think I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> 35 years, I've learned a thing or two. Uh, and, you know, we now produce sell vegetable boxes all over the country. But... I can't, even growing organically, I've always been a bit unhappy with the amount of cultivation there is of the soil and the disturbance, the damage that causes to all the, the um, you know, worms and insects in the soil and fungi, the mycorrhiza and so on. And, uh, you know, could we produce food with less disturbance of the soil? Uh, and I guess that's what I'm devoting more and more of my, uh, let's say, declining years now. And uh, so, you know, less disturbance of the soil, that means growing, I think, almost certainly more perennial crops. And we do indeed grow, I'd encourage our customers to eat artichokes and cardoons and rhubarb and we grow strawberries and so on. But I'm really, the ultimate for me is to be able to produce food economically in a financially viable way to make it attractive to other farmers to join us in this uh, from perennial plants, largely from um, trees. So that means nuts and apples and uh, and, and particularly, I'm interested in, in, in walnuts and hazelnut. I'm really inspired by the hazels because they just grow so happily in the, in the hedgerows. And I, and I look at them and I think, you know, surely we can harness that. They grow so happily anyway without inputs. Uh, but unfortunately, the nuts are very small. So we're now growing cultivars with much larger nuts uh, in an agroforestry system. And I'd love to, I've, this, I've chosen probably the most challenging field on the farm. It runs down over the hill here, uh, it gets steeper as you go down and it's 30% slope plus. It is south facing, uh, the soil is not as good as one would want for walnuts probably. And I suppose the reason I'm doing that is if, if I can make it work here, I can make it work anywhere. That's one at the song somewhere, isn't it? <laughs> and... Uh, and, and I, I'd love to be able to, you know, encourage other farmers to move a bit away from, I don't want to banish cattle from the countryside, but I mean to move away some of the most unproductive farming, which is beef and sheep, really, and encourage some of those farmers to get into something which is, you know, more sustainable, i.e. nut production. Was it a big move? I mean, most for most farmers landowners putting trees on agricultural land is quite a big brave decision to uh, make did, did 
did it come comfortably or um, did it feel like a risk? Um, very comfortably for me. I mean, I, you know, I, if we can produce food, you know, the, with the least kind of inter, the least disturbance of nature, you know, that's what I want to do. And when I walk along and I see, you know, hedges, which are, you know, sometimes, you know, 80% hazel and they're growing really, really well. And I think, well, you know, why can't... And, and they provide a fantastic level of biodiversity and, 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 you know, why can't we have that and the nuts as well? And everyone's happy. So I suppose I'm probably not a typical farmer. I tend to come out here in the fields <laughs> and I do dream about these things rather than buying a bigger combine or something, a bigger tractor, which is probably more typical of farmers. But it, it, no, it's come very... It was a... It took me about five years of thinking about it to actually do it. Uh, and it, probably the final trigger was some pretty awful um, cases of soil loss on the farm, uh, you know, combined with the, you know, climate, I'm not going to say climate change, combined with climate, you know, catastrophe, which we're, you know, looking right over the edge of the cliff at. But it, yeah. And it's, um, I should say we're on a field, ooh, how big is it? few hectares it's uh it's a, it it's about 15 acres this field 15. yeah we, we planted yeah. 30 acres with nuts some on slightly less yeah. steep <laughs> fields i wanted to try different sort of sites so some in valley bottom some on steep slopes some on less slopes um and you know to see try and get an indication of where they would do best and do you go as far as to factoring in them there must be a loss of production from the agricultural element for growing trees do you factor that in, or is it just a sort of personal I subjective s- balance? <laughs> I should qualify this by saying that I you know I'm fortunate enough to have you know made my living in the last forty years and and have enough money to be really be able to afford to do this as an experiment without worrying too much about its financial viability. However, it is not a hobby. <laughs> it is you know I know that I have to prove that this system is economically viable to other farmers for it to have any significance. And but so to answer your question, I mean the loss of production in this field they're planted on 16 meter rows. Uh, they're, they're electric fenced either side of the row of the trees and the cattle graze underneath. And so there is virtually, you know, loss of productivity would be, you know, 5%. If that, I mean, the, the electric fencing has a cost. Actually, the biggest challenge here is that the cattle hate walking up and down the hill. <laughs> so I can cattle, see why. Cattle naturally <laughs> would graze across the hill. So I, it might have been smarter to plant across. I mean, I applied them north-south because that, everyone advised me that was the best way to do it but you know they will they're little 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 bits of learning that we'll take from this and we'll plant another 30 acres this winter and adapt the system a little bit but no the the the, the loss of production is insignificant in a grazing system and um and indeed i would think within very few years the fact that you are providing shade and shelter within the field i think the cattle will be happier and it may actually even increase productivity and 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 animal health so uh, no, no. The, the would cost you, would is, you put this into your horticultural systems? That is more challenging. We have experimented with growing artichokes in an orchard, uh, and there were quite a lot of compromises there. Mm. Um, we didn't plan it very well. I think it would be possible, and I will try it again. But I, personally, I think it fits most easily into a grazing or on, on, more, on flatter fields that would be cut for silage or hay. It fits perfectly comfortably into that, and you perhaps wouldn't have to fence then. So that's another system that we'll try this winter. Hmm. And 
I, I'm interested what you were saying at the start. You were talking about the soil health on your land and moving towards less intrusive systems, I guess, to mm. the soil. Yet, when you were planting these, obviously you dig holes, you've put yeah. cardboard down, you've yeah. composted them. It's kind of quite, although on a small scale, quite an intrusive way of planting um, trees. I, I suppose... I, well, I would argue with that. I would say the intrusion was absolutely insignificant. I don't suppose 1% of the um, surface area has been disturbed here. Uh, certainly less than 5%. Uh, and it's quickly, you know, <laughs> as the, does the grass, has quickly grown back over. So the, the alternative, and more economically, would have been to cultivate strips and would have made mm. planting. But I don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're releasing you know, carbon dioxide into the air every time you cultivate and, you know, probably wouldn't be any risk of erosion, just one strip to plant the trees. But, you know, the idea was to do it with the minimum intervention. However, you know, a tree, if you're going to plant a tree, my experience, having planted other trees and not looked after them properly, is you've got to give it the best chance in life that you can. And that means, you know, for two or three years that it, it has, you know, little or no competition so we did dig the holes we did incorporate some compost we then put some uh, of our used veg boxes down <laughs> and then covered that in compost and that seems to have worked actually it seems to work really really well we haven't had problems with voles well a little bit of problem but nothing like uh, what I gather people get when they use tree mats uh, it's using no external we make the compost on the farm the the boxes were going to be um uh, were at the end of their life anyway so it's using no external inputs apart from the tree guards and i even question whether we needed them actually do you think if we'd planted this up as a whole woodland that would have been quite intrusive on the soil i, I suppose what i'm getting at is in, in tree planting and forestry are there, is, are there things we can learn from the way you practice your horticultural enterprises? Because it seems like a, such a light touch you have on the land. The lesson that I think all farmers and maybe foresters uh, need to learn is, is embracing complexity, really. I mean, all our economic systems and farming systems are sort of pushing us towards specialised farms. So people are either specialised in dairy, they're specialised in combinable crops or they're sheep and beef, really. Well, that's what all the farmers do around here. And very few of them do more than one of those. So, you know, it's specialised, it's monocrops, whether those monocrops are grass, quite often just ryegrass or whether it's combinable crops. And the idea of actually integrating trees into that is is going in the opposite direction to agriculture has both in my father's lifetime and in my lifetime, which has been to reduce the number of enterprises on farms. You know, arguably, you know, mixed farming is muddled thinking, as I remember one of our neighbours telling me. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, but nature is muddled, isn't it? It is mixed up and it's muddled. And, and, and any sustainable system will embrace diversity so that you know means different crops growing in the same field to my mind so I I just do think and how you manage that well I mean I don't know much about trees I'm growing fast I'm sorry I'm learning (laughs) fast (laughs) learning fast about it but you know I think the best way of doing that sort of multi-enterprise thing within one farm is to actually bring in is to work in partnership with people who do know about planting trees so I would have been done much better to have a partner who knew about growing nuts in this, but I'm in an area where no one grows nuts, so I didn't really have that option. And I guess, I guess that's the other side of the complexity, isn't it? You have complexity in land use, but that means you need complexity in how you think about and manage the land and the people you bring into it. And you, you have, 
you're lucky enough to have a huge knowledge of your land having been here for so long if you don't is it possible to put that complexity in if you're not intimately bound to the land i don't i mean i i think probably some of my thinking is driven sort of intuitively so where that and that probably intuition is is built up you know from years of working with the land specifically with this land on on this farm so yeah there is some truth in that but I also think there is value to be found in in you know bringing in external people who may not know that farm but who have a wealth of experience from different um, circumstances Mm -hmm. and and combining the two. Intuition that I think that's really interesting idea and of course it from my perspective as a forester, I guess, intuition is, using intuition is really easy if you're in agriculture, because if you get it wrong, you try something else. <laughs> this isn't quite the same with trees, it's the, I guess. It is, the yeah, it's quite scary with trees when you are looking at such long term, you know, if I, if I planted these at the wrong spacing or in the wrong aspect, if I haven't prepared the ground properly for harvesting the nuts, you know, someone's going to be cursing me for a hundred years. You know, it's <laughs> uh, so. You know, you can't that thing of just trying something and moving on. I mean, we. I don't. Well, I'm going to be dead. You know, the climate's the planet's going to be ruined. I mean, we do actually need. Uh, you know, to take some risks. I'm afraid now we can't have that iterative. There's just not time. So I suppose I am taking a bit of a gamble here. The big question mark really is how we're going to harvest these nuts, because any all the machinery, most nuts. You know, we think of nuts as being a lovely thing to eat and probably good for us, good for the environment. Actually, they're not. Most nuts are grown in a monoculture with absolute scorched earth underneath, nothing growing whatsoever. Billiard table flat so they can be harvested mechanically. Again, we've gone down that single enterprise route, you know, uh, you know, with something that should be a good crop for the environment. is actually isn't at all quite often using irrigation from unsustainable sources. So, you know, they are not a great crop the way they are grown but I don't think they have to be grown that way how I'm going to harvest these is is going to be a challenge (laughs) but I am absolutely determined that they will be harvested mechanically but we will I'm hopefully going to go to Italy next month and see how they harvest because they're on some quite steep slopes um they absolutely have to be harvested mechanically and processed mechanically this is not you know I want it to be at scale well and I think this idea of scale is is really important it's very easy perhaps to Mm. to grow things on a hobby basis and if it works it works and if it doesn't it doesn't and you can sell at the local market but your work at Riverford that certainly I find so inspiring is is the scale of it because there's a population to feed I guess and presumably the same is true of your tree yeah well I mean farmers will I want (laughs) <laughs> may sound arrogant, but I want to develop something here which other farmers may follow. And for that, farmers follow what works commercially. You know, they look over your hedge, they see if you've got a good crop, and then they see if you buy a new tractor or a Land Rover or something, then they're really impressed, and they might start listening to you. You can talk until you're blue in the face. If your crops look crap and, and you're not making any money out of them, no one will listen. <laughs> That's the truth of it. So to make this work, you know, it has to be mechanised. We have to have the proper drying, sorting, processing, cracking, packing, all that equipment, uh, you know, which I am committed to doing. And it's going to be, you know, 100, 200 grand to possibly more with the harvesting, even to get into that on a relatively 
modest scale. But I, you know, I have just looking at the way the trees have taken. I so far, I'm, I feel, you know, really encouraged that growing them is not going to be a problem. Um, and uh, yeah, harvesting maybe. <laughs> <laughs> How long before you get to harvesting? Do you think did produce nuts this year? But they, I imagine, it was a response to stress in, in being transplanted. And they each of them had about ten walnuts. But then they dropped them. I think I might be able to see one on that tree there. Uh, but yeah, I'm told eight years to a commercial harvest on the walnuts and three or four on the hazels. The hazels haven't taken quite as well, so maybe might be four or five. But I do feel very confident that we'll be harvesting walnuts actually sooner than eight years here. You know, It's interesting that you talk about being a, a demonstrator, if you like, for other farmers to show perhaps a way forward. I don't think that's mm. arrogant in the slightest to want to do that. Um, but what about... I'm all, almost more interested in society and whether you think there's a disconnect between land use and food eating, if you like, or and fibre use in terms of forestry, and whether that's whether that's uh, you see that's being true or even important. I do see it as true, and I do see it as important. Um, you know, people are totally disconnected of where their food comes from. And I'm afraid all the marketing that goes around... I mean, I read a bit of research. It's three out of four people want to know where their food comes from. Uh, well, do they really, or do they just want to hear a good story? Because, I mean, there are loads of businesses out there just telling good stories, and they're mostly bullshit. And, and, and so the actual reality of farming... You know, where does your milk come from? It comes from... You know, it's not some old McDonald farmer. It comes from, you know, a huge herd on the whole. You know, sometimes milking thousands of cows, sometimes cows that never go outside. They're milked by largely by Eastern Europeans, or at least they were prior to Brexit. I mean, that's the reality of food production. Where, who's, who's picking your vegetables? You know, they're not grown on some small scale. They're grown on the fens on a vast scale, you know, with a rig pushing 30 people in front of it harvesting. That is, you know, the actual disconnect between the reality of how our food is produced and the kind of stories that are told about it by bullshit brands i'm afraid does drive me up the wall and there there is just there's so much dishonesty and and you know the idea that we're going to change the way we farm you know i think this is the government's you know dogma that somehow the, the, the public are going to demand that food is grown in that environmentally sensitive way with care for animal welfare and care for, you know, the social impacts of food and that that is going to be communicated through the supply chain so that farmers are forced to improve the way they farm. It's just crap. I mean, all you do is get people spending a lot of money on marketing telling lies. That's all you get with that system. So, uh, so you know, the idea that we might have a greater connection with how our food is produced and that's somehow going to change the way it's farmers produced, I'm afraid I, I, I've spent 30 years wanting it, arguing for it. I'm sorry, I just think it's a complete lie. The only thing that will change the way farm is, is done is through, it, it, it's, it's through legislation, banning certain pesticides, banning certain practices... Um, you know, the market is not going to drive the changes that so many of us want to see. I, I do feel that very, very strongly. And I almost, I get really angry with it because I do think to arguing that people's connection and knowledge about how their food is going to be produced is going to change the way we're, it is actually allowing government and large industries to continue with the diabolical standards they do. And people always cite the one example where, you know, consumers have changed that we've got away from battery chickens 
And that, can you tell me another one? I mean, I don't know another one. You know, it just doesn't, you know, if you always point to the same example, there is only one example, everything else has failed. That was a longer answer than you wanted, wasn't it? Something I feel really strongly about. It is the changes in agricultural practice are not going to be driven by the market. We need to get our politicians to legislate. So one of the next very obvious question then is as non-forester, I hear everything you say and agree with an awful lot of it. What's your view of timber production as a, I guess, a consumer rather than a grower? Um, I think I'd love that we produced as much timber as we reasonably can within our landscape. And uh, it's not something I know very much about, Jez, I have to say. But I do... But I'm not an advocate, for instance, of rewilding. You know, I, I do think all our, most of our potentially productive land, it is managed and it needs to be managed and it needs to be managed to, you know, for biodiversity, to fight climate change and to produce things which are, you know, food and things of economic worth, you know, timber obviously being, being one of them. So, yeah, no, I'm absolutely in favour of, of reforesting and... Rewilding may have its place, but I do think we should be, you know, planting trees with view to their value. Yeah. But, and I guess there's, the, on the one side, there's the, the one end of the scale, there's that heavily industrialised farming and forestry. Mm. Um, in forestry, sort of, you know, monocultural Sitka spruce, farming huge grain banks being grown. In the east, and then on the other side, the other end of the spectrum, there's that rewilding idea. And I guess from a farming standpoint, you sit somewhere in the middle of that, trying to do the best ecologically whilst producing food. And the question is, can we feed Britain that way, this middle way? Um, and can we produce okay. enough fibre? Is is the other question. Um, people to feed Britain I mean the what it works that I have read on it uh, to feed our population uh, we would have to eat a lot less meat um, you know I think we eat on average about 1500 grams of meat a week each that would probably have to cut that in a, a third I'm, I'm personally I'm not an advocate for getting rid of all animals from the countryside I'm mean, partly because I just don't know how to farm without animals without some land for grazing to restore its fertility without the manure that comes from the animals but I certainly think there is an overwhelming argument for reducing the amount of livestock and the amount of meat that we if we did that then yes I do think we could the the, the data that I've seen that we could feed ourselves I mean do we really want to I mean I really like lemons uh, you know I'm never going to grow lemons here so I'm not I'm not I'm given, given not... the weather today perhaps we could <laughs> I'm almost always dogma is wrong, whether the dogma is, you know, rewild everything or whether it's really intensive everywhere. You know, dogma is seldom, you know, you, you want to find, you want site specific solutions. You know, this is never going to grow vegetables on this field. It's never going to grow grain. You know, it's okay for grazing, but can we have something better than that? Can we have grazing and nut production? Well, I hope so. And that's what I'm experimenting with you know other areas it might be better to have walnuts and grain growing in between on on better quality you know less steep 
land. I mean, I, I, I comes back to that complexity of complexity, land use, yeah, and 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 site-specific solutions, which are very difficult. You know, I've just argued for government legislation. It's very difficult to legislate for site-specific things. You know, really, you have to have the same rules on subsidies and what you're allowed to do across the country, or it's very difficult to do it in any other way. Uh, and that is difficult when we really do. You know, what's good here. You know, it's certainly, you know, Dartmoor, five miles away, it's certainly not good on Dartmoor. If you go down towards the coast, it certainly wouldn't be good there either. So, you know, we do need, you know, the, the, particularly in Devon, you know, the, our topography and microclimates vary huge. And, and, you know, walnuts just over the other side of that hedge would be hopeless. You know, the soil is half as deep and it's incredibly exposed. So, yeah. I mean, th this complexity of land use, which is something I find really exciting is going to change the landscape quite fundamentally. If we look, this field we're standing in soon is going to look completely different as these trees mature. Your hedges here are unflailed and it's fantastic, but we look behind us and there's, we look to the green fields of rolling fields of South Hams. Does that changing landscape, visual landscape matter? Well, I, I think it does. I mean, I, you know, I think I would probably would put biodiversity and um, carbon sequestration ahead of a visual amenity. But, you know, yes, visual amenity is certainly part of it. I mean, you know, it's a joy to see standards growing within fields. I mean, we've got a couple of ash over there and uh, or an ash and an oak. Uh, and actually part of my plan is to establish more standards within fields. You might have seen a couple in the fields as we're driving around. So, yes, I, I do think the visual amenity is... Uh, is important. I mean, if you're going to take a, you know, reductionist economic view, you know, probably far more income in the southwest comes from tourism than farming. You know, why do people come here? Because it's a beautiful place. Uh, and yeah, so you might say there is even an economic argument for that. I mean, we are looking over Dartmoor here mm. um, and sitting in an organic um, South Hams full of good quality agriculture. Should we just move the tree growing to Dartmoor and leave this land for food growing? Um, well, I suspect that hazels, well, I know damn well that hazels and walnuts wouldn't thrive. <laughs> Certainly the walnuts wouldn't thrive on Dartmoor. You know, the soil's wrong, you know, it's too exposed and uh, probably too cold. So, uh, so no, but I think that I'm sure there is an argument for... Uh, you know, a lot more trees on Dartmoor, probably particularly in the more protected, you know, valleys, you know, building on what we already have there, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, grazing sheep or overgrazing sheep and ponies and cattle on Dartmoor and paying, you know, huge subsidies to farmers to do that is just completely mental. I know lots of people will argue for it because it's a tradition, it's a way of life and so on. But what an absurd way to be spending taxpayers' money, you know, to be actually damaging the environment, you know, which it is, some people describe it, you know, where it's really overgrazed, you know, as an ecological desert, you know, it is, I wouldn't want to see it all covered in trees and I'd, I wouldn't want to see all the farmers going, but, you know, again, you know, we need, even within Dartmoor, we, I suspect we need, you know, site-specific solutions, some areas probably suitable for trees, um, you know, others not. And I guess that situation's come about partly because of the way government subsidy has worked in the past. Where, where do you see the future of that? It's something that's heavily discussed in forestry and in agriculture and land use in general. It's... 
I, I, um, well, you know, the mantra that we've had since Michael Gove, I think, first uh, uttered the phrase, you know, public money for public goods, is one that we, uh, you know, I think everyone, almost everyone, would wholeheartedly support. You know, the devil, as always, is in the detail. How do you actually implement that? How do you measure public good? And, and goods and how do you, you know, reward for them? Well, you know, it is extremely difficult, you know, and, uh, and, and, and so, so varied. And so I, whatever solution we have, I think it is going to have to be delegated to local bodies to administrate what is locally applicable, which opens up a whole can of worms, you know, potentially nepotism, corruption, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things when you get, that's why governments like to have simple solutions so that you don't, but I'm, I'm afraid when it comes to farming, you've just got to do it at a local scale. So, you know, my experience of Devon Wildlife Trust, for instance, when they come around here is that they are really, really sensible people and probably would be in a good position uh, you know, to act between me as a farmer and the government as a funder and to make sure that I am actually delivering those public goods for the taxpayers' money. And, and uh, there may be better people than the Wildlife Trust, I don't know, but it is not going to be a bureaucrat in Whitehall. <laughs> you know, and I can say that because I was two years ago, I had Devon Wildlife Trust here on the same farm, that natural, same day, sorry, that Natural England were here and the guy was walking around with a, um, a beacon in his back, plotting all the little areas of nettles and brambles in the field and reducing my payments accordingly, whilst the Devon Wildlife Trust were walking around and almost everything that Natural England want me to get rid of, the Devon Wildlife Trust wanted me to encourage. I mean, what a ridiculous <laughs> disconnect and waste of public funds. I mean, uh, you know, so... Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, we're not going to end up with a sane agricultural policy at a local level that is administrated from, from Whitehall. We do need to allow it to be done locally. Do you think we should be optimistic about the future of land use in general? Well, given the sort OK. Of the... I'll get the, the, good th the good thing is that there is a tremendous appetite from it, from the public, and, and I think from farmers, actually. We get a bad flex farmers you know perhaps not organic farmers but a lot of conventional farmers you know really do care about wildlife and really do want to do the right thing and I've got a tremendous amount of sympathy for them as being you know held up as eco vandals that contribute to climate change through their farting cows and so on you know it's uh anyway let's let's be in no <laughs> doubt about what causes climate change is burning fossil fuels you know mm. forget about the cows you know let's not uh, and I've forgotten what your question was. Sorry, James. <laughs> am, I optimi am I optimistic? Are you optimistic, am about, I optimistic, are you optimistic yeah. about the future of land use? Are you optimistic that there might be a better connection in the future between society and land use? Um, I see lots of signs for encouragement from farmers and from the public. I see lots of signs for discouragement from the absolute inept incompetence of our government. I'm sorry, that's how I feel. So short of... You know, it's going to take a radical change of government, a government that is not focused on sound bites and whatever, you know, who actually are interested in implementing sensible long term solutions. I'm sorry, I don't think they have any interest in that at all. I think all they care about is the next headline and getting reelected. And that is not going to lead to a sane agricultural environmental. How do we change policy. that? Well, I have to say, I, you know, I'm sorry for those listening who disagree with this. I think the, the absolute top of this, if we want to have a saying, is get rid of Boris Johnson and our current government. I'm sorry, that's probably not what you want on earth. But it is a massive impediment 
to actually moving forward at a time where, you know, with time, you know, time is running out. We don't have time for these crass market-based solutions. Everything that came out of Michael Gove and that now come out of George Eustace is all about the bloody market. The market is not going to solve these problems. We need courageous, far-sighted, well-researched policies from central government. So is it not a, a systematic problem that politics is, or the civil service is, unable to cope with the longer-term nature of land use? No, I've got no problem with the civil. Lots of sensible things come out of DEFRA. I think there's some really smart people working there. Just bloody listen to DEFRA and take the politics out of it. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure if you just left it to DEFRA, they would come up with something really sensible quite quickly. You know, the problem is that DEFRA don't get to actually implement the policies. It's government, and that's where it all goes wrong. And I think one last question that we've been asking everyone, um, and I think you are known for being outspoken, as we might have noticed in this interview, <laughs> which is fantastic. But if there's one radical change that is needed within land use, what is it? This isn't really answering your question. But, um, That's fine, that, I'll yeah. just ask it again in a minute whilst you're thinking. Okay. <laughs> the only thing that matters at the moment, the only thing that matters for the next 10 years, maybe 20 years, is reducing fossil fuel consumption. Everything else is trivial. Planting trees is virtually irrelevant. Reducing, actually, reducing ruminant numbers would have some significance. All that matters is, is reducing fossil fuel consumption. The only thing that's going to reduce fossil fuel consumption is making it more expensive. I, I just do not understand why we are not taxing it. You know, currently we're debating putting a tax on national insurance, you know, on jobs essentially, which will affect the poor the most. You know, why not just raise that money? Actually, not by taxing something that we want people to do, going to work, tax something that you don't want them to do. You know, burning fossil fuels. You know, according to an OECD report, uh, which I read last week, you know, fossil fuel consumption would redu reduce 25% in three years if it was taxed appropriately. You know, don't, don't talk about market-based solutions. Just tax the bloody fossil fuels if you want to solve the climate crisis that we're in. And I, I, I'm not, I, you know, I don't think almost, everything we're doing here is almost irrelevant compared to that. That's the only thing that's going to solve it. How are you going to harvest this <laughs> well i will harvest if you made fossil fuels twice as expensive mm. and distributed those tax funds to poor people or sometimes mm. to um encourage environment then i would use the fuel that i do use much more conservatively i might even have a hydrogen driven tractor you know if you give those incentives business is really really good at coming up mm. with ways of doing things efficiently within the framework that they exist. So change the framework and business will change and it will use less fossil fuels. You know, electric tractors wouldn't be impossible. I bought my first electric wheelbarrow last year. I love it. That's how all my staff are arguing about it. <laughs> so, you know, it is, I, business can find the solutions to our problems, but you do need to give them very clear and simple guidance. And the best way of doing that is to make fossil fuels more expensive. And, uh, and I know that didn't really answer your question, but I, I, I always think it's the only thing that matters. You know, in the short term, in the longer term, you know, clearly 
trees you know will make the world a better place but in the short term and when time is running out all that matters you know fossil fuels contribute 86 percent of climate change in the last 10 years so all that matters is reducing them just as simple as that it's really bloody simple and anyone that almost anyone that argues for anything else is just distracting us from what really matters which of course makes shell and mobile and exxon really really happy <laughs> yeah you're wearing a t-shirt that has handwritten all over it make trouble question everything do we need more people that make trouble and question everything in land use <laughs> do we need more of you um well, to make I, a difference i think there's a tremendous amount of bullshit that, that just passes unquestioned and uh and um you know, and I, I'll come back to my fossil fuel thing. You know, it's very, very obvious what we should be doing. And, and you know, so I think independent thought is incredibly important. From a kind of commercial point of view, no, you don't want too many people like me. We're an absolute <laughs> nightmare to work with. <laughs> We're actually really poor at actually getting things done. We're good at asking questions and maybe setting the steer in the right direction but people like me with the attention span of a butterfly you know t are actually very poor at implementing solutions you know that you need all those really dull people who work in the civil service they are the implementers and and, and then they do come up with some really good stuff but we do need people like you to innovate and I push forward you do need you do need people like yeah the the in the early stages of change are typically led by bloody-minded you know, rude people like me. And then you need your sort of completer finishes, perfectionists to actually, you know, perfect it, which, and, which I think actually we're rather poor at in this country. I, I do notice, I also have a farm in France, how much better they are at doing the detail on the whole. You know, we're great innovators in this country. We tend to be a little bit less at, better, at, good at sort of implementing and perfecting things. Guy, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure to talk to you, to stand here in the sun in South Hams and uh, discuss this with you. Thank you for making the time for us. Thanks, Jez, and yeah, good luck with the edit. <laughs> <laughs> Not my problem. <laughs> we'll be engaging with many more inspiring people, ideas and tree-based practices through the full Tree Radicals inquiry. Check out the details on our website, see the link in the bio.